Let's open the Word of God to the Gospel of John in the 17th chapter, and let's finish the Lord's Prayer as He finally reaches that section where He prayed for us. These are indeed wonderful chapters. John 14 through 17. If you just stab your finger at any one of those four chapters, there is something precious there. As he just piled lesson upon lesson, promise upon promise, to his apostles before he was to be crucified. We are on the road to Bethany. We're in that short stretch between Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives, where there was a garden called Gethsemane, where he would pray to his father personally about himself. This is his prayer for apostles and for those that would believe through their ministries. It's a wonderful section of the Bible, those four chapters. This is a wonderful chapter, and you may find in these verses today a wonderful verse that you consider to be better than anything else in this section of Scripture. Let me read to you verses 20 through 24. These five verses are Jesus praying for all believers. In the first four verses, for their unity in divine love, and in the 24th verse, or the fifth verse of this section, he prayed for all believers that they would be with him in heaven to behold his glory. Verse 20. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them, as thou hast loved me. Father, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. Amen and amen. amen. This is the word of God. This is the Lord's prayer. This is the gospel of John. This is Jesus praying for us. He wants us to be unified, and he wants us in heaven. It's that simple. But there's other things said here in these two points to be made. The first point is in verses 20 through 23, unity in love, peace, fellowship, and joy. That's what he wants for his children. We want it for our families. He wants it for all of his children, and then he wants us with him in heaven in the 24th verse. But let's look at verse 20. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. These and their, in this verse, are the apostles, because he has been praying for the apostles. For instance, verse 12, while I was with them, this is a different them. This is the apostles' them. Right. While I was with them in the world, past tense, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost, but the son of perdition. So there was 12, one was lost, 11 left, it's apostles. Verses 6 through 19 are the apostles. Verses 6 through 11, verses 6 through 10, five verses, was Jesus' reasoning as to why the Father should hear him for the apostles. Then we had three lessons, and we covered them last Lord's Day. Now we come to verse 20, where Jesus says in his prayer, with his eyes lifted up to heaven, and the eleven listening, and right there in his presence, he adds another group of people to those eleven. 
And that group of people is us. Neither don't think that I'm just praying for these 11. Neither pray I for these alone. Neither pray I for these only. I'm not only praying for the 11. I have another group in mind that I'm praying for. And that group includes you. That group is for you. Christians for 2,000 years have loved that verse of John 17, 20 to know that the Lord Jesus was looking ahead in time to see them. The Bible tells us he shall see his seed. Isaiah 53, he shall see his seed. Jesus saw those for whom he would die. They had been given to him by covenant. We had been chosen in him. We were in the Lamb's book of life already. So neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. Now Jesus didn't shift to just pray for us and ignore the apostles. That's why we have the word also in there. Because Jesus wanted the apostles in heaven to behold his glory as well, but he's adding to the eleven us. It's a transition in his prayer from the apostles to those believing their word. And their word was not only the spoken preached word that, they, that men heard audibly, but it's also the written word that we get through the epistles of those apostles. It's, it's one of the prayer's general divisions that we want to take note of. I have tried to break this chapter into sections for you, for you to see the specific prayer requests and reasoning of the Lord Jesus Christ in this very great chapter in the Bible. Jesus' affection and concern for the apostles hours before the crucifixion has moved us to think that in two hours he will be arrested, tortured, crucified, and buried, and he prays for them. His prayers about himself were only for God's glory and for God to glorify him so that he could glorify God better. Now his prayer in Gethsemane, which the Bible does record in other places, is different from this. This prayer shows us his focus and attention on the apostles. And it makes it special. It's hard for us to imagine with so much coming, weighing on him because he knew it. You know, when things happen to you, it's a surprise. Because you don't really know what's coming very often. But he knew what was coming. And he still prayed for them. And he had just finished the Last Supper a, few, a couple hours earlier. And here he is focusing on them. But now it's us he's focusing on. And that is precious indeed. So the words, neither pray I for these alone, are meaningful to us. Right. He also loved and cared for us Gentile dogs. It is not meat. Jesus said, to give the children's bread to dogs. And he said that to a sincere seeker, a Canaanite woman. But here he is praying for us because we have believed the apostolic record about the Lord Jesus Christ. Before you had existence, he already saw you. Right. If he prayed like this hours from his torture and death, what do you think he's doing in heaven right now for you? He should have been distracted. I think if you'd have known you were about to be arrested, tortured, crucified, you'd be distracted. Have you ever been distracted with something impending like a driver's license test? Or something less than that at school? Have you been distracted? Jesus wasn't distracted. He was focusing on us, and now he's in heaven, absolutely glorified, free from distraction, and he's praying for us. He ever liveth to make intercession for us, the Bible tells us. That's exciting. His words right here, Trump, President Trump, honoring you before a joint session of Congress. What if President Trump was to mention you or our church before a joint session of Congress? We'd be texting and tweeting and emailing each other furiously, but so what? He can't do anything for us in this world or the next, right. in comparison to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
These are some of the most precious, personal, intimate words in all the Bible. Every believer, everybody who says, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, should love these words, should embrace these words, and should not be distracted right now as I attempt to explain them to you. He, in verse 20, transitions from the apostles to you. Every one of you that's been baptized has professed that you believe Jesus is the Son of God, that he was sent from God. So you're those that believe on him through the apostles' word. Embrace what's coming. It's wonderful for us. There's a transition from these to them. And you want to keep that in mind because we're going to run into it down in verse 25. Because I believe in verse 25, he shifts back to his primary audience, and that's the men standing right there, because he uses these again. In verse 25, as he closes out his prayer, because he's not going to leave them hanging, that he forgot about them while he was praying about us, but he comes back to these in verse 25, that he had declared God's name to in verse 26, and that he would declare it, and he did declare it after his resurrection for 40 days, And then he declared it by giving them the Holy Spirit, which brought all things that he had for them to them. He spent 14 verses on the apostles, but he still took time out for you, dear listener. He still took time out for me. The compassion and care he had for the apostles extends to us as well. It doesn't leave the apostles out, it just adds them to us together to be one body in Christ. The first evidence of eternal life is faith, which proves our election. And we're supposed to add to that faith seven other things that make our calling and election sure. And so in verse 20 here, Jesus is saying, Father, I'm praying for all the elect. Not just, not only for these 11 apostles, but for all the elect. And they're evidenced, as usual in the Bible, by their initial act of faith that God sent Jesus Christ into the world, and that Jesus is the Son of God. When Jesus prays for someone, that's an important thing in the Bible. His intercession. Because notice here, he is not praying for unbelievers. He is not praying for reprobates. He is praying for 11 plus those that believe by the work of those 11. John Owen, that theologian of the kings of England in the early part of the 1600s argued for the limited atonement of Jesus Christ under more points than anyone else has ever done. But one of his points was, how can the atonement be extended to those he doesn't intercede for? If Jesus intercedes only for those given to him by the Father and not all are given to him by the Father, then he doesn't intercede for all. If he doesn't intercede for all and he intercedes for all for whom he died, then he didn't die for all. That's the way the whole book is written that way. In syllogisms, powerful syllogisms from the Bible, And so we have connected that Jesus died for us and Jesus prays for us. That's why we started out this morning with Romans 5, 8 through 10 and Romans 8, 34 through 37. And you can add to that Hebrews 7 and verse 25 because he ever lives to make intercession for us. So if he died for you, he's going to be praying for you. If he's praying for you, he died for you. And that class and group of people is exclusive from the rest of the world. He's praying for us, God's elect, that believe on him. And it's a powerful point. And so for whom he, those he died for, yea, rather, much more, he's living for them and he's going to save them by his intercession. If we've been saved by his death in a legal way, We shall finally be saved by his intercession for us and his life. He will stand between us and hell. He will stand there between us and hell. 
Does God answer the prayers of the Lord Jesus Christ? He always hears him and answers his prayers. In John eleven forty two, 42, it puts it this way. And I knew that thou hearest me always. I knew that thou hearest me always. But because of the people which stand by, I said it. That they may believe that thou hast sent me. So we've got to read the word of God carefully. Because sometimes he may say something or do something that's for the benefit of his earthly audience when he knows that God his Father in heaven always hears him. And he does always hear him. Belief is not the condition of eternal life, but it's the evidence, the proof, and the sign of it. And thus it's here in verse 20 when he's praying for his elect and those given to him by the Father in verses 2 and 3 of this chapter, he calls them those that believe on me. Do you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? It's not mere mental assent. It's not just an intellectual exercise. It's not just a recognition of facts. Have you embraced him? Do you love him? Do you serve him? Has that belief in him changed your life? Are you in Christ in the way the Bible describes? And we've, we've taught that to this point, but we don't want to neglect it as we move on into verse 21. The New Testament mystery has preaching to Gentiles and believers in the world. Believers. Preach to the Gentiles, believed on in the world. So here we are, believers of the Gentiles in another hemisphere from the Jews. Verse 21. That they all may be one. Here goes the prayer request. And when we read a prayer request of the Lord Jesus Christ for us, we should pay attention to it. It should be very important to us. Right. And here we go. John 17 and verse 21. And the first prayer request is verses 21 through 23. Those three verses together give us this request from various angles. Verse 24 is quite different. Verses 21 through 23, but I read verse 21. That they all may be one. That they all may be one. What all? The eleven and all that believe on me through the work of the eleven. That everyone, that all the elect, all the believing elect, all the believers out there that are going to come in the future, Jews and Gentiles, might be joined with the apostles in believing in me and be united in one fellowship. That they all may be one. As thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. This isn't the first time this has been prayed. Look back at verse 11. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, referring to the 11. And I come to thee, Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. So there was one of the prayer requests of the Lord Jesus for his apostles contained in verses 11 down through 19. The first prayer request, the first prayer request, did you hear that? The first prayer request is unity. The second prayer request was protection from the world. The third prayer request was sanctification in holiness. But the first prayer request was unity that there wouldn't be any divisions, that there wouldn't be schisms, that there wouldn't be bitterness, that there wouldn't be grudges, that they would love each other and be in fellowship with each other and help and serve one another just as God and Jesus work together. How many differences do you think there are between God the Father and Jesus Christ the Son? None. How many differences in purpose? How many different goals do they have? Never anything like that. And so we have verse 21 that they... All may be one, that the world may know that thou hast sent me. We'll get to that in a few seconds. That they all may be one. We see our Lord's emphasis again on the unity of believers together in God and in Him. He prayed for Christian unity with His arrest and torture and death right around the corner. He didn't stress any great commission, did He? There's no great commission in John 17. He didn't stress any building program, did He? He didn't stress any ball teams. He didn't stress even doctrine. He stressed unity. We don't compromise doctrine for unity. 
We're going to be united in doctrine. But we're going to be united in the Lord Jesus Christ. His stress on unity is obvious because it was the first request for the apostles as well. And it's his first request for us. You know, that verse 24 about us being in heaven with him, that's glorious. But he first wants us unified. How can anyone that doesn't work for the unity of a church ever think they're going to be in heaven? Because their thoughts and opinions in heaven are absolutely going to be discarded and expunged. So we ought to get rid of them now and serve the body as the good Christians of the New Testament did. Which New Testament epistle will you raise? If I was to ask for hands right now, which New Testament epistle will you raise, especially Paul's, that does not stress this same point? That's why I had you read Ephesians 4 last night. Ephesians 4 may be, if I say one of the best, then I'm safe. It it may be the best cross-reference chapter to John 17. Because it started with unity, first six verses. Then it went to ministry, like the apostles. Then it went to change lives, sanctification through the truth. Then it came back to unity at the end. That's what we want. That was Paul practicing what Jesus prayed right here. So we have a commitment in this pulpit. Your pulpit. Your pulpit is committed to at least once quarterly preach about brotherly love, peace, and unity in the church. And so we stress it because Jesus stressed it. And it's so important. A good father can't stand dissension in his family, can't stand dissension in his marriage. A good boss or a good departmental supervisor can't stand dissension and differences in his department. Jesus can't stand it in his kingdom and churches. And so it's stressed, and here it is. And if we're going to learn from this Lord's Prayer, we have to see the emphasis. We have to see what is he praying for? What was so important to him that on the way to the cross, just hours or minutes from it, he asks for unity because he knows us. He had had to listen to those 11 apostles bicker and argue about who was going to be important. They They were actually soliciting their mommies to come to him. James and John, sons of thunder, but getting mommy to come to Jesus to try to get them a special place to sit in heaven. He knows that about us. No wonder the Apostle Paul in Titus chapter 3 and verse 3 says, we were filled with malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. He knows that about us. He saw it. He saw the jealousy and the envy. He, he, He listened to Judas Iscariot pick on Mary for wanting to anoint his feet. He saw that about us, and so he wants unity in his churches. He wants unity among his believers and among his followers, and so it's right there. And while you might be looking for some sappy presentation of these verses or some tear-jerking stories about these verses, these these verses are very doctrinal and content-filled that we're supposed to learn things from them as to what he prayed for. These things ought to be the highest goals of our lives because it was the highest goal of his life for us. And it was the highest goal of his prayer for us. Unity, that they may be one. He just, bam! Look at verse 11. I mean, verse 20 just is the transition for us. And the first prayer request is in the first few words that they all may be one. We can read in the Bible at times when troops would follow David, they would be of one heart. The Bible says at different times, one mind, because double-minded is terrible. And being double-hearted is terrible. But we want to purify our hearts, that we have, we have one heart toward the Lord Jesus Christ. We want a single eye toward heaven, not a divided one. You cannot serve two masters. For us individually, we need to be united And as a group, we need to be united because he wants us all in one. And that's his goal is to save us all in one. There's going to be one family of God. 
and there won't be any dissension in it finally when we're glorified in heaven. But we want to reach toward that now already. Compare this to the United Nations and their regular warring and bickering among their member nations. It's ridiculous on earth. But when you open the Bible to Acts chapter 2, it's only a couple pages away. Look at Acts chapter 2 and what that early church was like. That's what we want to be like. And we have grown toward that. But we can still reach higher in this way. Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. The 3,000 that were added to the 120, and they continued steadfastly. They continued. They weren't wandering all over. They weren't going up and down. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And Acts 2.43, and fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. There's those 11 men from John 17. And all that believed were together. That's one. And had all things common. That's one. One balance sheet for the purpose of this particular chapter. And sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. And they were in favor with all the people. The common people of Jerusalem saw this church, all these people, all of a sudden together, combining their assets to take care of each other and rejoicing and praying and eating and worshiping together. And they were astounded by it, which is just what Jesus prayed for, that the world may know that thou hast sent me. And that the world may know that thou hast loved me. And that the world may know that thou hast loved them. Let us show the world Christianity. We do not show the world Christianity by doctrine. They hate our doctrine. Right. They don't understand our doctrine, and they don't care about our doctrine. But when they see a group of people living together, loving together, sharing, serving, helping, uplifting, warning, comforting one another, they see that. That's why Jesus said in this same night, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, by the love ye have one to another. Yes. For us to buttonhole people and try to press doctrine on them, big hoop de doo The only ones that are going to get excited are those that are born again and ready to join the church and the devil. See, because the devil believes it. He's going to shout amen to it. He's going to say, of course we know Jesus is the Holy One of God. Of course we believe in incarnate sonship. We didn't have one to worship until Jesus was born. We didn't have one to torment before Jesus was born. Just going by the word of God. See, there's nothing in here about doctrine. There's nothing in here about bash them in the face with truth. There's show them my religion is true by being undivided. They can't do things together. You can do things together. Show them. Show them the change. And so we have that they all may be one. Our nature before and after regeneration is prone to division. Even though we're born again, converted, and, and loving the Lord, we're still tempted by division. The apostles argued about their kingdom positions. Paul warned the Galatians that if they weren't careful, they were going to bite and devour each other. Galatians chapter 5. That's always there. And we want to hate it and resent it. And, and rid ourselves of it. It's a solemn duty to be a great peacemaker. Throughout the New Testament, to be a peacemaker. Make peace. First, You first of all make peace with you. Then you make peace with those you've offended. And you make peace with those that have offended you. And then you make peace between two others out there that are not getting along very well. There are several levels of peacemaking which we can earn the kudos of heaven right. by being peacemakers. You know, we can memorize the five phases, upside, downside, backwards, inside to the outside. We can start with the third phase and work out to the first phase and then go back to the third phase and work out to the fifth and so what and who cares. Yeah, it's truth. But you know what truth is? Truth is that what is done on that particular page of our five phases of salvation should result in a changed life. Amen. And what is a changed life? A life that loves. Because that's the hardest 
grace of all. That's the greatest measure of all, and it's what Jesus goes after right here. I never want to stress or emphasize anything the Bible doesn't equally stress or emphasize. I don't want to overstress it, and I don't want to understress it. And when you open up this prayer and it comes to us, that they all may be one. There it is. There's so many verses that we could turn to about being one and esteeming others' things more than our things. Does anybody want to quote Philippians 2, 2 and 3? Or should I just read it? I'll read it. Philippians 2. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. This is a great little lesson. It's being taught to our children. Everyone else is more important than you are. Period. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. We don't want glory. It's called vainglory because when it's glory you seek for yourself, it's vain and worthless and really stupid. And we don't want strife, which is dissension, arguing, bickering, bitterness, and grudges. Let nothing be done through strife or vain. Nothing. This is Paul. He knew John 17, 21. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. So we've got to lower our minds. We think we are special. We think we are important. We think we are better than others, and that's got to be eliminated to be like the Lord Jesus Christ wants us to be. As foretold of the sky and of Jesse, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb in his kingdom. What are you this morning? Are you a lamb? I'll bet if we poked you a few times, we'd find a lion or a wolf. (laughs) I'll bet your family knows you a little differently at home. You're so docile when you're here. We just want to pet you. The wolf and the lamb. That's part of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And it's here, not worded that way. It's worded that they all may be one. No fighting, no striving, no differences. Thank you, Father in heaven. We love the truth of your word. We don't care what anyone else thinks. We don't care about those that get on some doctrinal bandwagon and don't know anything about your gospel or your grace, and we have to wonder if they're saved. Because doctrinal infatuation is no evidence of eternal life at all. Right. It's infatuation with Jesus Christ and infatuation with Jesus Christ's children. Yes. That's the evidence of eternal life. Now, as that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee. So there's the standard. The standard of unity. The standard of unity is not the United Nations. If we do better than the United Nations, we haven't achieved The standard that we're supposed to reach is as God the Father and God the Son are united. So it says in verse 21 that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee as we're united. And the goal is not and cannot be unity of nature because they didn't have the same nature except in his divine nature. But it was unity of affection. It was unity of purpose. It was unity of design. It was unity of fellowship. It was unity of love and care and service and glory for each other. They sought the best for each other. Jesus always sought the best for God, and God the Father sought the best for his Son. And together they sought to glorify themselves, and we want to glorify each other in this church, help, serve, build up, and reach the same purpose that they had for each other. And that's our molding together to be more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. This is unity in agreement. It's unity in fellowship, unity in joy, love, plan, and purpose. Because that was laid out for us in verses 11 through 13 when he prayed the same thing for the apostles. God and Jesus have never resented each other, never slighted each other, or sought for glory. They've never had a difference of opinion to to hinder kingdom prosperity at all. Their design and efforts are perfectly compatible and united in goals and purpose. And that's what we want to have. We don't care about matters of Christian liberty. We don't care where you live, how you, what, you, what you live in, as far as a house or what you drive. We don't care if you drive American-made or if you drive Japanese-made. We don't care about those things because those are matters of liberty. But everything else we care about, we want to be one. It's for the glory of Christ. It's the glory of God, the furtherance of the gospel, and the perfection of saints. 
pressing, pushing, serving at all times that those goals be achieved. And, and we want to be like a household of Stephanus that was addicted to the ministry of the saints. He wanted to serve them, building up the body by that which every joint and every part contributes, that we will grow up to the full measure of the stature of Christ. Those goals, spiritual goals, those show born again, saved people that God gave Jesus and Jesus prayed for them and they are going to be totally different from the world so that when the world sees them, they look aghast. That church loves each other. That church is committed and are of one mind, one heart. The unity in there is unbelievable in their goals toward heaven and Jesus Christ. That's what we want. That's what the Lord wants for us. So it's what we want because it's what he wants. God the Father and the Lord Jesus were committed to glorify and honor each other. It's the opening of this whole prayer. They had and have great affection and love for each other. Look at John, listen to John 3 and verse 35. John 3, 35. The Father loveth the Son. The Father loveth the Son. This epistle is filled with that. We want to love the Son. There's love involved. It's a loving, tender, passionate, zealous, serving, helping, adoring relationship. The Father loveth the Son and hath given all things into his hand. Chapter 5 and verse 20. I remember the effect this particular sermon and section of Scripture had on some of you. For the Father loveth the Son and showeth him all things that himself doeth. And he will show him greater works than these that ye may marvel. The Father loveth the Son. We want to love the Son. We want to love each other. Look, 1 John 5 puts it this way about our love. 1 John 5. It is such a shame. It's a terrible shame that we have gone in the past to 1 John 5 to get the first half of the verse to ignore the second half of the verse. It was the deformed, distorted, handicapped church that we were for a while in the beginning. 1 John 5, 1, Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. All the work was spent in the past, decades ago, on the first half of the verse, because that's all that mattered. The devils believe that. Anybody can believe that. You don't need to be born again to believe that. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. But look at the second half. And everyone that loveth him that begat, loveth him also that is begotten of him. Everyone, every person that truly loves God, that truly loves God in God's definition and standard, loves God's children. Because how can you love the Father and not love the children? Is his reasoning. And it's not just there. It's all of chapter 4. It's all of chapter 3. And it's something we overlooked because we weren't taught it. And so we've learned it by the grace of God and we have changed over the last 30 years by the grace of God. Thank you, Father in heaven, and thank you right now for reminding us of the importance of it, that they all may be one. Jesus prayed that we believers would also be united as the Father and Son are one. A kingdom divided cannot stand. There should be no schism in the church, whether it's doctrine, persons, or personalities. Lord, help us that they all may be one. It's wonderful. 1 John 1 says it this way, and this has been read to you before, but remember, we have God the Father, Jesus is praying to him. We have the Lord Jesus Christ. We have his apostles that he was the closest to, and that he committed the Spirit to the most of all. And then below them, we have all believers through their word. God, the Father, Son, Apostles, us. That which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. 1 John 1.3 this chapter started out with that which was from the beginning. Like John starts out, in the beginning was the Word. That which was from the beginning. Here he's called the Word of Life. We've touched him, handled him, and seen him. And notice the emphasis though. We have fellowship with the Father and His Son, and we want you to have fellowship with us. 
There are the four levels right here from John 17. God the Father, God the, the Lord Jesus Christ, the apostles, and us in fellowship, in one, together. Thank you, Heavenly Father. In us, our unity is in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There's one baptism, there's one Lord, there's one faith, and we believe there's one body, and we believe that. When we say blood is thicker than blood, that's because our unity is in Christ. We overlook everything, anything else. Anything, any other connection of a family or things like that is animal DNA. It's utterly worthless in the big scheme of things. I mean, even that wife of yours that doesn't have your DNA, you know, you're not going to be married to her in heaven. Right. There isn't marriage in heaven. But what counts is the blood of Christ, the doctrine of Christ, the person of Christ, the love of Christ. That unites us. And so it says in us, as we're working down through verse 21, that, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also, like that, may be one in us. Because our oneness is in the Father and in his Son and in the apostles. We're in God the Father by loving him and him sending his Spirit into us. We're in God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, by loving him as the Son of God, and he sends the Spirit of Christ into our hearts. We're in the apostles because we follow the apostles in their tradition and what we know of Christ was given to us by them. And we're all together about God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the apostles. Blood is thicker than blood. Unity for the sake of unity that compromises doctrine and truth is ecumenical heresy. We're not talking about unity without integrity. We're not talking about unity without orthodoxy. We will gladly enter the ark Christ Jesus and leave compromisers to the latter reign. That's what they call their movements. We've now reached the third or the fourth latter reign of the so-called charismatics who think that God's reigned on them. He has. He's reigned on their parade. <laughs> we reject and despise ecumenical efforts to compromise doctrine and truth for unity like Bill Gothard, Billy Graham, focus on the family, promise keepers, and all the rest of that junk. That the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Jesus' goal by this carefully defined unity is to testify the truthfulness of Christianity. What, when, how did the gospel go out of Jerusalem? By illiterate and or ignorant Jews. Yep. Who believed it? Some philosophers in Athens believed it. Some kings believed it. It permeated the world. Right. And wherever these churches exist, when, other, when worldlings come in and see the warmth and the unity, and they should see the warmth and the unity, it's a shame that in many churches that is not the case, but this is what he wants for our church. And it was that case in the church at Jerusalem. Unified, one, common balance sheets, totally obsessed by taking care of each other. Nothing of their own mattered to them, but to make sure that no one had any wants or needs. It's precious. It's Acts 2. It's Acts 4. It's all stated again over there in Acts 4. That the world may know that we are the Lord Jesus Christ. And I've already mentioned the passage to you. By this shall all men know. Do you, can it be said any plainer? By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples. By the love ye have one to another. Right. So that's what we stress. That's why we say love is the greatest. Why would I make it anything else? Faith is nothing. Faith is the least. Faith is as low as you can get and pretend that you're saved. The devils believe and tremble. <laughs> I don't want to go that low. I want to be a little higher. And so you've got to add things to faith. It's, that's why love is the greatest. Men and their manners changing as witness to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Acts 19, those Ephesians that believed brought their witchcraft books out and burned them in the streets and loved each other in this united congregation it was precious. And we want the same thing. Lord, help us to that end. Verse 22, And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one. The glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one. Father, you gave me glory, and I've given that glory to them, and that glory that you gave me that I've given them should unite us all together. What is that glory of verse 22 that would, that would make us one? 
Now, Jesus says here, and the glory which thou gavest me. God had given Jesus some glory, but most of the glory was yet to come. And whatever glory is under consideration, Jesus had given it to his followers. What had he given them? His highest honor to this point, and the highest honor that he's going to get after his ascension to heaven, are one and the same. But do you know what it is? He was given a particular honor that exalted him over others, including the angels. Yes, son. Yes, sonship. That's the glorious honor that God gave the Lord Jesus Christ. That holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Jesus thundering from heaven, this is my beloved Son. That's how he gave him glory. This is my Son. I hate examples, but maybe you thinking of a father that has trained his boy since four to play football and now he's playing in front of a hundred thousand fans and he throws multiple touchdowns and wins the game that is my son you know some fathers can't handle it like a particular basketball family from california and some fathers are very gracious about it but our father in heaven he wants the whole universe to know about it this is my beloved son and when Jesus got to heaven, the words were, This is my son, this day have I begotten thee. And he, and he formally and officially announced it to the universe. That was the greatest glory God ever gave to Jesus Christ. So that Hebrews chapter 1 reasons throughout the entirety of the chapter, no one else has ever been called the son of God like Jesus is. Unto none of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son. No angel has that. But what are we through Jesus Christ? We're the sons of God. Right. The first chapter, the 12th and 13th verses tell us, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. That's glory he gave. And the glory that's coming, do you know what the big climactic moment is when this earth is burning behind us and we feel the heat on our backs? Do you know what's going to be happening in front of us? While the whole universe is being disintegrated and melting under fervent heat, the manifestation of the sons of God to the universe. Right. We will be manifested officially and formally and finally along with Jesus Christ as joint heirs of the universe with him. There is so I could preach for a long time on this one point right here, and the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one, because that puts us together in a family. He's our brother. The reason that we are saved is he wanted to have, he wanted Jesus to be the firstborn among many brethren. What will he say in the last day when he, when he presents us to God? Behold, I and the children which thou hast given me. Oh, it's beautiful. Father, I have received your glory in you owning me as your son. I've given them that glory and told them you're, they're your sons so that they should pray to you, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That should make them one, Father. I want them to be one in our big happy family with you at the head. I'm the oldest brother and the rest are brethren. And there are passages that we could go to that are just beautiful on this particular point. We've we got to go to Hebrews. Look at, look at Hebrews chapter 2 where Jesus Christ is crowned with glory and honor in heaven according to the Apostle Paul. Hebrews chapter 2. And the glory which thou gavest me. This isn't the glory of his divine nature. We can't take it. This is not mediatorial glory of Christ, for only he's the mediator, we're the mediated. This is an eternal glory or glorification, for this is for unity on earth. This isn't glory of miracles, which the miracles were called glory, because most sons don't do miracles. This is not partaking of the divine nature of 2 Peter 1.4, because that doesn't it, it indirectly helps, but it's not specifically assigned in the Bible to helping us be one. What glory makes us one? By being in the same family. Amen. By being brothers. Yep. Blood, blood, blood brothers. Right. 
We're all blood brothers. You want, it, want me to show it to you? And it makes us one. Hebrews 2. Let's try it. Let's see if it fits. Hebrews 2, 10. For it became him, this is the Lord Jesus Christ, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. Look at he brought many sons unto glory in the middle of verse 10. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. One what? One family, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. We're all of one. The children that God gave to the Lord Jesus Christ to redeem, to make up the family of God. So that's the glory of John 17, 22, and it is glorious indeed. God the Father had given Jesus glory as his son by thundering from heaven on earth. He gave him much more glory as his son when he ascended up into heaven. The issue here is the unity of the family of God while it's on earth, which is based on the fatherhood of God, the sonship of Jesus, and our sonship with him from Ephesians chapter 4, the first six verses you read last night. It's the sonship of God that's to be displayed to the world that the world may know that God sent Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. It is a shame. Yes, I'm shamed. It is a shame that decades ago we would go into a passage like this and pull out the wrong verses to the detriment of our church for a while. Philippians chapter 2 when we go to Philippians 2, we usually go to 12 and 13. I'm going to ignore them. I want 14 through 16. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that she may be blameless and harmless. Are you with me? Philippians 2, 15. That ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. Is that John 17, 22? We're the sons of God. We have no fightings. We have no disputings. We have no murmurings. We shine forth the light of Jesus Christ's gospel by the love we have one to another. Holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. He's taught us how to love, back there in verses 12 and 13, He's worked in us the, the will and to do of his good pleasure. But what is his good pleasure? Who cares if he's worked it in us or not? That is a secondary point to what did he work in us? And what should we be working out? Just to read it from an intellectual standpoint about salvation, so what? Right. He, worked, he worked in us and we're to work it out. Goody, 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 goody. I haven't learned anything yet. What am I supposed to do? What did he work in me that I'm supposed to work out? And it's right there in verses 14 through 16. Blameless, harmless, the sons of God in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation and we're lights to the world that way. We're not lights to the world by quoting verses 12 and 13. We're lights to the world by loving one another without differences of verses 14 through 16 of John 17 and of, yes, everywhere else you look in the Bible. Because love is the greatest. I've given them sonship, that they may be one even as we are one. And the whole family of God's going to be united. Jesus is coming back to gather together in one, all that are in heaven, all that are on earth, into one. We ought to act, act like it now. Verse 23, I in them, thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one. And that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. That's our goal. To show that Christianity is a reflection of God's love of us and God's choice of us and our changed lives. The greatest change in a life is not believing that Mary is your mediatrix and now you believe that Jesus Christ is your Savior. The greatest the devil's never stooped so low as Mary. The greatest change is to be selfish, resentful, hateful, critical, negative, and become loving, merciful, patient, 
gracious, kind, forgiving. And it's love that does that. It's God's grace through us that does that. And that's what the oneship is here that Jesus is praying for. He knows what he has seen in those apostles. He knows what's in our nature. And he knows that there's going to be division and dissension unless God the Father greatly blesses these 11. And those 11 were united. We want to be united. We want the world to see that God loved us. Jesus wanted the world to see that God loved us. Over in Revelation, when Jesus Christ is warning the churches there about the synagogue of Satan, he says, by the events that are going to come to pass, the world's going to know that they are the synagogue of Satan and I hate them. And that these Gentile churches, remember where the seven churches of Asia were? They were in Turkey. That's Turkey, across the Mediterranean Sea. They were Gentiles. And that I have loved thee. You know what happened in 70 A.D.? The Lord Jesus Christ crushed the Jews and destroyed their city, their temple, their priesthood, and everything. And here were these churches flourishing on the other side of the Mediterranean Sea of Gentiles. They will see that I hate the synagogue of Satan, and I have loved thee. And we show God's love for us by the change he's wrought in us and by the love that permeates everything we do with each other. This is our goal, to be one. Verse 24, Father, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, I have another prayer request, Father, be with me where I am. Now, Jesus wasn't there yet, but he was going to be there, and that's how you should understand his present tense verb construction, where I am. He did not want all of us believers to be in Gethsemane, about to be crucified. He wanted all of us believers in heaven where he would be. But he's, remember, all these things are so close and so certain, and because with God's power and with God's promise, they're going to come to pass, he uses verb tenses a little differently than ordinary. Father, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. This is the second prayer request for all believers. I want them in heaven. Father, I will. I want them in heaven with me. I want them to behold my glory. I want them to see what I am like when I'm not humiliated on earth, wandering back and forth by foot from the Sea of Galilee to Jerusalem, being baptized by my long-haired wild cousin, not having a place to lay my head, having less provision for me than the foxes who have holes at least to go into, I want them to see me glorified. I want them in heaven. Father, this is my prayer request. Jesus, if you believe on Jesus, let's go back to verse 20. What's the condition for this passage? Them that will believe on me through their word. If you believe the word of the apostles about the Lord Jesus Christ, then he did pray for you, and he is praying for you, and here's his prayer request. I want them in heaven. Do you need me to use your name? Do you want me to use your name right now? I want them in heaven. I want her in heaven. I want him in heaven. Father, he addresses his father one of the six times, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory. Everything about salvation and everything about the drama of the universe is moving toward us being in heaven with the Lord. It's all moving toward that. His foreknowledge led to his predestination, led to his justification, his calling, and his glorification in Romans chapter 8. Yes, it all leads toward heaven. Thank you, Holy Father for loving us that way. This is his second prayer request. The first prayer request was verses 21 through 23. Unity in love, fellowship, purpose, plan, service, commitment to the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 24, that we will be in heaven to behold his glory because Jesus knew that the Father had loved him from before the foundation of the world in the covenant plan of salvation. God wants to... There's that father again at a banquet, a sports banquet, a Heisman Trophy presentation. Would the parents of Danny Werfel please stand up? 
And that father gets to stand up with Danny Werfel at the microphone, having just received the Heisman Trophy. By the way, if you ever want to hear a testimony in public by an athlete, it's Danny Werfel accepting the Heisman Trophy. No one has ever come close to him. He confessed his sins when everyone knew that he didn't have any to the whole nation as part of his acceptance speech and gave all the glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. Sports Illustrated had followed him vigorously. ESPN had followed him vigorously for four years. The only thing they could get on him was that he sometimes, only sometimes, bit his nails. (laughs) But it was all... My point was, I got distracted by just thinking about that. All you got to do is, nowadays, you don't have to be as old as me to hear Danny Werfel. All you got to do is go to YouTube and type in Danny Werfel, acceptance speech, Heisman Trophy, and you can hear it and see it. What was it all about? Would the parents of Danny Werfel please stand up? And Mr. Werfel gets to stand up with an outstanding son. But our God is the Father in this case, and his Son is Jesus Christ. And Jesus knows what's coming. Jesus knows the drama and the climactic scene. And then the eternity following that is God the Father saying, Oh, interesting. This is my Son. Like a Mr. Werfel would say, but it's God, Jehovah, saying it of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is my Son. He went to earth when I asked him, and he died on the cross and laid down his life for these rebel enemies that he saved. And we have adopted a family purchased by his own shed blood. I had to kill my beloved son to get these other sons, and now we have a happy family. Forgive me, but and the rest of you go to hell. That's That's what's coming in the universe. You didn't like my son. You didn't give my son any honor. Now, some of you think that I'm a little too dramatic or drastic. Let me read you a verse. If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema maranatha, because that's my son. Right. You mess with my son, you mess with me. Is that the Gospel of John? Mm-hmm. You mess with my son, you mess with me. I'm going to mess with you. This is verse 24. Lord Jesus, come quickly. He wants us in heaven. He wants to show us the relationship between the Father and Him and the glory that He has and the love the Father has for Him. The Father loveth the Son. You better love the Son. Brethren, it's not enough to believe on Him. We want to love the Son. The Apostle Paul loved the Son. Paul just didn't believe in the Son. The love of Christ constraineth me. He loved the Son. And Ephesians 6.24 has the opposite of 1 Corinthians and Adonathema, Maranatha. Ephesians 6.24 puts it positively about loving the Son this way. Grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Grace. Not anathema, Maranatha. That's a curse. Grace. We want to love the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're going for. Father, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am. Today, he's praying, I want you, not Uncle Sam, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uncle Sam just wants to hurt you. Jesus wants to help you, glorify you, and put you on a throne in heaven as a king and priest. I want them in heaven. When you're dying, and you know that you're down to your last couple of hours or the last few minutes, whenever you are last conscious, Jesus is praying for you. I want her. Father, I want her. Father, I want him. This is John 17, 24. Take away all other verses in the Bible, but leave me John 17, 24. Do you understand that? You need John 17, 24. You need it now. You should embrace it now. You'll need it then. You should embrace it then. Eric, I was wrong last night when I mistakenly said John 17, 20. It is John 17, 24 that Richard Baxter said, if they're going to take verses out of the Bible, leave me one. Leave me John 17, 24. John 17, 24 
is Jesus praying to the Father, and he's still doing it. That's why we started this service out a little while ago with Romans 5 and Romans 8, that Jesus makes intercession for us right now at the Father's right hand. Father, I want them in heaven. Do you think there's a possibility that you can go anywhere else? There isn't a chance. Because Jesus knew, God knows, and we know, God heard every prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me. God the Father gave Jesus Christ great glory, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. That tremendous relationship between a perfect father, who's the Lord Jehovah, creator of heaven and earth, and his son Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, that incredible dynamic relationship of love and glory between the two of them, I want them to see it. Right. And we will see it. And we'll be like him. Jesus will be glorified like the book of Revelation pictures him. Revelation 1 and Revelation 5. Are you familiar with these chapters? As soon as I say 1, you should know that's John falling at his feet is dead after about seven verses of description of Jesus Christ glorified. Revelation 5 is Jesus coming into heaven and the three choirs bursting out in praise. Revelation 19 is Jesus on his white horse. That Lord Jesus Christ. But we're on white horses right behind him. It's in the same passage. Show, I want them in heaven with me to see my glory. And you know what the Bible says in 1 John 3, 2? We do not yet know what we shall be, but we know this, that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. And he is glorified, and he wants us there with him. And that's John 17 and verse 24. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen. Amen.